0: Hello and welcome back to Spinalcast. Joining us today is Dr. Brooke Ellison. Not only is she an author, a speaker, a Harvard graduate, uh, but she's also an associate professor at Stony Brook University and she focuses primarily on applied medical ethics, health policy, and disability. Brooke, thank you for joining us.
1: It's absolutely my pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you.
0: Yeah, you as well. I'm really, uh, I'm really glad we were able to find a time to get you on the podcast. Um, I think you have some incredible um, knowledge and stories around not only yourself but what you've been able to accomplish throughout your your life and career. And so, um, first and foremost, thank you for being such a great advocate for the spinal cord injury community. Um, it's people like you that kind of keep this train moving. Um, Thank you.
1: I view it as a privilege, really, more than anything else. So thank
0: you. Yeah, of course. So why don't we go ahead and start for the people at home, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us some details and a quick story around how you got injured um, and when that happened and kind of how that happened. Sure, of course. Um, Yeah.
1: So uh, I like to talk about a lot of things, but nothing more than talking about myself. So (laughs) we are well set to go. Um, So I am talking to you um, from Long Island, which uh, Stony Brook, Long Island to be specific, and that's about halfway out um, on the North Shore. If you were to travel from New York City to the easternmost point of Long Island, it's about halfway out on the North Shore. And uh, this is largely where I grew up. It wasn't where I was born, but definitely where I grew up. Um, I was born in Nassau County, which is closer to New York City than where I am now. And um, my parents moved my older sister and my younger brother out to Suffolk County uh, when I was just two years old. Um, Nassau County, just kind of being on the outskirts of New York City is, as I'm sure you can expect, kind of congested, you know, tired Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, beautiful, no, definitely beautiful, but at the same time, you know, a little bit um, more congested than my parents were looking to, you know, to, to have... Um, weren't raising their kids, so um, right. they moved us out east a little bit. And my childhood, you know, was very emblematic of many other kind of suburban childhoods. Yeah, I was um, involved in many physical activities. I was involved in dancing. Um, I started dancing when I was just two years old. Um, wow! Little league baseball and soccer. And I sang in my church choir. And I studied karate. So all of these things really were the. Um, Focal point of my life. You know, right. school during the day, and then any day was kind of um flavored by or characterized by whatever ac- uh, physical activity. Yeah, I was a yeah, you were a, a, a busy I was kid,
0: a busy kid,
1: exactly. And I loved it that way. That was how I understood. Like that's what made sense, right? It's just like that was that was life. um But when I was 11 years old, so this is. Turning back the clock to some 32 years to 19, uh, 1990. Um, I was, uh, it was the first day of my junior high school year, uh, so my okay. seventh grade year, and some friends and I decided to walk home from, from school. This was a new school. And we were feeling independent, feeling adult. Um, First day of school, got
0: to be a little bit rebellious, right?
1: Exactly. That's exactly what we did. Uh, So in order to walk home, we had to cross a pretty major highway here on Long Island. And in the process, I was hit by a car. It was a car traveling southbound on Nichols oh Road, which is a major highway here. And uh, I was traveling about 55 miles an hour. And oh. uh, yeah, yeah. And it was just one of those situations where I didn't see the car, the car, the driver didn't see me. And I was the only one in... The, in um the group of friends that I was with, that I was, I was physically injured, you know, we were all kind of affected in some I way, can shape, or form. Yeah, but I was the only one who was physically affected. So um, the damage that was done to my body was really quite extensive, really um, almost immeasurable. So my head hit the windshield of the oh car and cracked gosh. my skull open uh, and then i was thrown about 100 feet in front of the <laughs> car and landed on the pavement and in so doing i bit down and bit down well, i lost about a third of my tongue in that process and, and then I- yeah i had some damage done to all of my limbs either broken or ligament damage um And when the uh, EMS or the emergency response arrived at the scene of my accident, I was in cardiac and respiratory arrest. Yeah, so um, resuscitative measures were put into place immediately, and um, it was really only because my accident happened very close to the local trauma center, Stony Brook Hospital, um, that there was any chance of my survival. So I was in there yeah taken there immediately and um my parents were essentially told to expect the worst that you likely would not survive the enormity of, of the injuries that
0: were just so yeah extensive. i would imagine i would imagine that would be the case i mean yeah sounds awful it was it was awful that
1: is for sure um and, you know, the expectation that given the, um, the types of injuries that I sustained, that if I were to survive, that I would likely be very cognitively impaired. Um, that was kind of the, the prognosis that was put on the circumstances at the time. And really, there was no reason to believe anything other than that. Right, um, so for thirty six hours we were in this weird like existential limbo, and nobody really knew what was going to happen, you know, what turn my life was going to take, you know whether I was going to um survive or anything um fortunately, after thirty six hours, yes, you know, so about a day and a half, um I awoke from the coma that I was in and I was able to make eye contact with my mother and kind of um, indicate that I had some awareness, you know, that I yeah. was recognizing her face and that I knew that something you know, very dramatic had happened to me. I didn't exactly know what. You know, I was kind of in this weird um, you know, haze. Limbo. Not really yeah. Exactly limbo, not really knowing you know, where I was or what was going on.
0: So the, um, the coma that you were in, was that sustaining the injury kind of put you in a coma or did they put you in a medical coma yeah, just to make sure yeah it was, sure you know, they it
1: was could more kind of... the latter yeah. Okay. yeah the EEG readings at the time right, were just like we're flat um, yeah there was uh, a lot of I guess um, movement towards making sure that my body could rest as much as possible you know that until things um, right. became a little bit clearer in terms of what direction my you know, my um, prognosis was going to take that they wanted to give my body is much of a chance to heal on its own and kind of come to terms with whatever physicality it was experiencing at the time um, right. on its own. So, um, a lot of the fears that were surrounding, obviously my survival and then my cognitive ability thereafter, um. Abated, right? I was able to survive, even though every day after my accident was a bit tenuous, not really knowing what was going to happen from one day to the next. Totally. Um, But I spent six weeks in pediatric intensive care, just kind of getting stabilized, getting um, trached. So they put it in a tracheostomy tube um, so I could breathe more easily on the ventilator. Um, They did surgeries to stabilize my physical situation. And then I was moved to rehabilitation, so I was in rehabilitation for seven and a half months. Um, there was no wow. rehabilitation center, yeah, it was a really long haul um, i was uh there was no rehabilitation center anywhere nearby anywhere on Long Island or even really in New York State that was willing to um take me as a patient, given how old how young I was, Not really how I was how young I was, yeah. Yeah, and given the kind of extent of my injuries, and the fact that I was on a ventilator, so I had to go to a rehabilitation center in New Jersey, kind of like the daughter center to Kessler's called Children's Specialized Hospital. And this was the first time I was away from home, really, for any length of time. Like I never went to camp or anything like that, very Uh. much a homebody. Uh, So there I was, and my mother, uh, actually, her first day of work as a teacher, special ed, teacher in a local school district was the very same day as my accident it was also her last day as a teacher so oh she words. left her position yeah this was like a really um obviously familiarly transformative day yeah in my it's, a, it's a life-altering life.
0: event without a doubt holy
1: mackerel so much so and it's kind of like the, the date that we st- we tend to understand you know, two different sides of our lives, right? When things were, um, as I think many families typically live, and then when things you know, went in a different direction.
0: Right. So I was in the hospital
1: for nine months. So nine months and it was in rehabilitation that I learned to just like live again, learn to just drive a wheelchair, learn to talk, learn to talk on a ventilator, which is not something that is, you know, uh, especially easy to do. It sounds like something that would be easy to do, but you know, it yeah. requires a lot of practice and, you know, learning to gauge your speech patterns in, in, um, you know in concert with uh you know with the breath that comes in and out um I learned just kind of very elemental technology to interface with a computer like really really basic things so right. i could try to get on with my life and you know like i knew that i was entering a world that was going to be very different from how i had engaged with it in the past i needed to learn to be as vocal as i possibly could be and be an advocate for myself and yeah. you know take on the things that would allow me to continue to make a difference in the world, whether that was through my education or being you know, engaged in other ways. And um, my primary concern was returning to school. like That was something that was of central importance to me right after my accident. Okay. And uh, you know, my parents made a, a commitment to me that they would help me make that happen. We didn't really understand what kinds of um, barriers they would be. Right. Like, what does that, that mean?
0: right yeah like to exactly. actually accomplish that
1: right right it's one thing to say yeah this is what we're going to be able to do but you know, way back in 1990 this was like I mean, we were in a very different time when it comes to how people with disabilities were understood or appreciated right it was like thought of as okay to let you know a disabled a ch- a child with a dis- disability just kind of not participate or not be included in in the classroom or mm-hmm. um, you know, an adults with a disability not be included in the workforce, right? Like that was totally okay. And I remember, like, I was a product of that thinking just as much as anybody else, right? Even though I was only 11 or 12 years old at the time, like, I was very much a product of that social thinking that that was okay. That was an okay thing to do. And I remember having to fight that thinking, wait a second, no, I have something really valuable that I want to right. offer. You know, I have a place in this world that we need to make sure that, you know, other people understand that. Well, so I, we
0: fought. yeah, no, I think you, you. You kind of raise an uh, interesting point is there's a shift in the mindset that you had following the injury of either i'm going to fall into the kind of social norms that are set upon me and my injury and my situation or I'm going to kind of deviate from that you know preset form and get what I want and do what I want and make it happen and so that kind of mentality that approach how do you how did you originally formulate that kind of approach to life's challenges that were thrown at you? I think, I think for a lot of people, I mean, if someone's watching this and they're previously or recently injured, I think everyone struggles with that, that gap and when they make that switch. And so what kind of helped you make that approach change and, and what has really kind of been your, your key elements to that approach?
1: Right, right. I appreciate that question. I think that's a really important one. So, I mean, I think that, you know, in all honesty, there's, you know, there, there are several factors at play, right? So, I was and still am a very stubborn person. So, I know, <laughs> of, like, what I want and, you know, how I want to go about getting to that point. So, that, like, that was clearly a part of it. Um, You know, right. I have a really strong support network around me, a family that um cares Cared and continues to care very deeply about my success and like and making sure that you know, my life can be as rich as it possibly can be. Um, but at the same time, right there's this social question that needs to be addressed as well. Like at that time, um, mm-hmm. you know, there were just certainly many people um, in the disability community who were making forays into changing that societal position right people like justin dart who were like at the head of the um the movement towards you know the Americans with disabilities act and kind of right. helping to change that perception but there were not really that many people right there were not that many people and still to this day there are not that many people with disabilities who are in positions of leadership or kind of Being the kinds of role models that I think the world needs to help shift our thinking from, wait a second, people with disabilities should not be included, to we need to change that completely. We need to do a complete 180 when it comes to how people are appreciated. And like that is the work that I've really committed myself to.
0: Yeah, I do think it's a systemic issue, um, especially for people who maybe just haven't even been exposed to someone who um, has a disability. I think... There is a kind of a unwritten, I shouldn't say rule, but almost an unwritten kind of societal um, belief that, you know, I don't want to exclude anybody, but I also don't want to feel like I'm being so inclusive that it's unsincere. And so it's like, how do I approach someone with a disability and say, like, I want to get you involved without having it seem like I'm trying to angle for something or have, you know,
1: tokenism or whatever. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And
0: so I think for for people with disabilities to be able to have that strength and for people to know that it's not disrespectful to think of them as equals and it's not disrespectful to think of them, um, you know, the way that everyone would want to be thought of right mm-hmm. it's it's exactly trying to create this level of equality which has you know been a massive topic for society as of late but continuing to do that and branching it further out um exactly. is going to be crucial right right i mean man i mean there
1: are, as you mentioned right like um society is dealing with a lot of social inequities, right like i think we are um Seeing the uh, effects or the consequences, I should say, of a failure to account for everybody in our policy making and our decision making in the kinds of worlds that we have created um, but even to this day people with disabilities, um, wheelchair users, people with spinal cord injuries what have you, are, have really been absent from that conversation um, right. so we can talk about diversity, equity inclusion, belongingness but like it requires an additional step in many different um, additional factors to take into account in order to make that realistic for people with disabilities so it's not just tokenism right? it's not just we're going to make This accommodation, so that we can, you know, virtue signal or make it like, you know, we're trying to, um, uh, you know, walk the talk, but actually to actually do that, that requires additional forethought and really being mindful of the lived experiences of people with disabilities and saying, okay, this is this is something that's valuable. This is something that we want in our in our workplace or in our classroom or wherever, um, rather
0: than just a gesture. Totally. I, and that's a that's a constant um, theme, I think, in many of our episodes mm-hmm. that we've recorded thus far is the fact that um, the lived experience is like absolutely critical to people understanding it and people mm-hmm. being open to it. Um, and so I, I, I really like that that kind of tie in um, going through your your history and your your, I guess what I would call accomplishments, it, it's a and impressive list, by the way. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but uh, one of the things that kind of excited me, because I'm a big TED Talk fan, is I, I saw that you gave a TED Talk um, and kind mm-hmm. of focusing around hope and three mm-hmm. key elements of hope. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just kind of tying back to, to that TED Talk and talking a little bit about that um, and kind of the topic that you covered.
1: Actually, actually you know, the, the question that you just asked about, like, you know, what... You know, what was the impetus behind me making that mind shift? Like that is kind of the the heart and soul of how I understand hope. So um, yeah. I'll back up a little bit. So when I was um, an undergraduate uh, at Harvard, I did my, um, my I was focused on cognitive neuroscience. So it was kind of a, a fairly new program at the time. Now, yeah, I'm much older, but a fairly new program at the time, and there were various ways you could approach cognitive neuroscience it was a joint program between either um psychology and you know computer science or psychology and something else that i can't remember right now yeah psychology and and biology um so mine was the mind brain behavior track and there are many people in this track who are looking to go into medicine um hmm. yeah you know, this is kind of like the stepping stone into a, um you know the medical profession and um so this was you know an intersection of psychology and biology so kind of taking a very kind of biological look at how people behave and why people do what they do so i focused my research and my um honors thesis ultimately on the intersection of hope and resilience, right? So two constructs that we, I think, tend to think of as almost, you know, analogous to one another, but actually very different. And, you know, hope ever since has been a really kind of constant in my life and when i say hope like i don't just mean really kind of ethereal things that we wish for or we want in life but hope as a as like as a verb right as an action statement and Mm. i i understand the um components of hope as to be like starting with goal setting right kind of having a vision for things you want to accomplish, even if they are seemingly small, but kind of just at a, um, a manifestation of purposefulness that we can gu- use to guide our lives and how we get oh, yeah. from where we are to those those goals. You know, is a cluster of, of factors that involve you know, kind of not just so. so understanding the challenges in our lives because we all have them we're all going to face them but not letting them become completely all-encompassing that we can't think about everything else right so anytime any one of us undergoes a challenge in our lives it can easily feel like you know this is just this is taking over every part of our lives and we can't we become completely incapacitated in every aspect of our lives even if it's just kind of circumscribed to one one component of it right so kind of the first aspect of of hope as far as i see it is compartmentalizing the challenge so it's just kind of limited to as least impactful a role as it can possibly play right and then reorienting our focus right so so after cause when we face challenges that becomes the center of our attention right that becomes the object at which we continue to look even if we don't need to, right. So then from mm-hmm. from there after compartmentalizing that challenge, even though they don't know that's more difficult than than the words might imply, um, reorienting our focus, right? So looking just to other aspects of our lives so we can still continue to make a difference and still, you know, engage it and give our lives meaning. Um mm-hmm. and then finding Ways to develop our own sense of personal empowerment, whether that is through kind of personal conviction, personal will or through the supports that we need around us right like i I have yeah whatever accomplishments I've had in my life, but I would be completely foolhardy and erroneous to say that you know these are the products just of my own efforts right I've had i um I've been able to find the people in my life who were, Willing to offer support to be the voice of encouragement to you, yeah. you pick me up on days where I feel really down or frustrated. Like all of these all of these entities in my life were central, absolutely pivotal to be able to do anything that I've done with my life. So those are what I understand hope to be. And it's like not looking away from challenge or denying that it exists, but it's actually kind of a, a deliberate acknowledgement of the challenges in our lives and saying, okay, wait a second. I'm still going to, I'm still going to move forward with it anyway. It's an understanding of the challenges in our lives and not saying that we're going to dismiss them, but living alongside them.
0: Yeah. It's a, well, I mean the best way I, it's a redefinition of hope, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, Mm -hmm. a purposeful definition of hope versus say a, you know, Merriam Webster's definition of hope, the meaning of the (laughs) word hope is much more complex than you know a an empty um wish that is held internally so you're you're kind of approaching hope in a much more constructive way that builds it into um you know these processes that allow you to actually take action on hope versus um wish it into existence
1: Exactly right. Exactly, and that has like um, a physiological as well as
0: psychological
1: effect on who we are. Right, it helps to rewire our brains so that we don't live in fear of the challenges that we experience. It kind of, it, it it moves trauma from um kind of you know like historical memory to active memory. It's something that we can actually do something about. Right. So it's not a constant fear in our lives or something we can take ownership over.
0: So changing gears a little bit, I, first and foremost, I, I like that definition a lot. Uh, I think, you know, being able to, to approach problems in that way would help a lot of people in the world, whether you Mm -hmm. have disabilities or not, but being able to look at the word hope in that way, um, just for anybody I think is valuable. So, um, if, if we can find the link or if you can send us the link to the TED talk, we'll make sure we put that oh, in, sure. in the description below so people can go check, check it out and Thank you know share you. it around. Because I think I think that's it's one of those things I, I've come across numerous things like that in my life in which it's like this is this is brilliant enough that it should not be secluded to one group. <laughs> um, and so I think that's a, a perfect example of that. Thank you. It's wonderful thinking. I
1: appreciate that so much. It applies to everybody, just as you mentioned. You don't need to live with a disability in order to understand the role that challenges will play in all of our lives. It's kind of a fundamental part of the human experience. and The the better equipped we are to manage those instances, the better off we all are, right? Because they can be really transformative. But um, how we develop the skills necessary to live with them rather than try to either deny them or run away from them, I think is really important.
0: Yeah. Absolutely, so changing gears just slightly now um you know we we do a lot of interviews with um, researchers and doctors in the field of of spinal cord injury sure um and really kind of where where things are going and I'm interested in your thoughts and take on the current state of of spinal cord injury research and how you see it um you know going forward and you know. Just your general um, take on the current state of the SCI research community. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So for as long as I can
1: remember, I've been um, an ardent um, advocate for and supporter of um, all forms of uh, biomedical and regenerative medicine. Um, that is kind of how I I cut my teeth in any kind of Public conversation. Um, It was being an advocate for um, stem cell research. You know. 20 years ago, um, you know, when I was a graduate student um, at the Harvard Kennedy School, that was the first policy issue that I felt like I had the capacity and experience to be a part of. Up until that point, that was like not a part of who I was at all. So I remember being in one of the courses that I had taken at the Harvard Kennedy School, really like the, the, the most seminal course I took in any capacity at any point in my life was a course on leadership, and it was a really kind of experiential course where people were um, encouraged to talk about issues that were of concern to them they cared about, even knowing that they were uh, potentially um, uh, not unanimously thought of as something we should uh, be involved in. Right, so whether that was mm. conversations on racism or conversations on gender equity or you know, any number of, of issues, and I, I just kind of nowhere, this, so this is a time in my life when I still wasn't really fully aware of my own voice in different conversations, a little right. bit introverted, a little bit backwards, and you know, just there was one day in class where I just started to talk about you know, the issue of stem cell research and biomedical research, and um, you just kind of allowed myself to be vulnerable in ways that I never had before. And cool. at that point I said, wait, you know, this is something that I really need to be much more vocal about and and play a larger role in. You know, I feel like I have something important to say. Um, some lived experiences that I think many people don't have the um the opportunity really to um to be a part of or a, a vantage point from which to see the world that many people don't ever you know experience and this is a voice this is a, this is a, um a position that needs to be heard yeah so for 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 years and years and years i became um a steadfast advocate for Biomedical research, and even though I wasn't doing the research myself, wanted to create as smooth a path as I possibly could for scientists to say to for them to do the work that they need to do in order to um to advance cures and treatments to, to diseases and conditions that um have long gone without any 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 treatment. Um, right. So to this day, I remain a very ardent supporter of that. And however, I can make that. A possibility um, and a reality. I am very eager to do
0: that. So, what, what, what? Can you give me a couple of examples of the types of things that you've worked on or done to try and? bridge that gap and give them a quicker and easier route sure so um when
1: i ran for i ran for a public office in new york state senate um mm. when i was just 27 years old actually so awesome right yeah right out of graduate school like right after taking this class on leadership like i, I this was not something i ever would have imagined myself doing ever but i wanted to be so um so much uh, a part of this conversation that I, that I decided to uh, to take on an incumbent, like a 20-year incumbent here on Long Island. Um, That's with, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So definitely a, gu- a gutsy one um, with stem cell research and the need for New York State to fund stem cell research um, yeah. as the the, the the main plank in my platform, right? So this was at a time when uh, the federal government was, Quite restrictive in the kinds of funds it would allow for um, for biomedical research, and different states were taking on um, the the work right funding. Uh, stem cell science and uh, regenerative medicine within their own state borders, and I thought, okay. you know, New York is such a central hub of innovation and science. Why isn't New York doing this? And so that became the central platform of my campaign. So I took it right up to the top, right, like right <laughs> up to um, you know the circles that I think um, many people would be reluctant to you know, to to step into so i did that right, just right. at just 27 years old um and so that was kind of step number one uh the outcome of the election did not go in my uh, electoral favor nah. um so yeah i know so frustrating but you know the work that i did thereafter was it you know, was pretty cool so um i so th- uh, based largely on the work that I was doing um the then incoming incoming uh incoming uh gubernatorial uh candidate uh so Elliot Spitzer he initiated a um a 600 million dollar um stem cell research initiative here in New York and I sat on the ethics committee of awesome. that yeah so it's So kind of cr- even
0: even though you didn't win your you're kind of your your target was still kind of acquired in in a way, exactly shape, or form. Exactly
1: right. Exactly right. So I felt very, very proud of that. And I, I sat on the ethics committee of this board. So cre- I created, helped create the uh, framework within which um, funding would be allowed in New York State for this this research to, to move forward. Um, after that, I I founded a nonprofit organization called the Brook Ellison Project, where um, the you know, the mission of the organization was to help provide education to people, kind of a Audience who are not necessarily familiar with what the science was all about, yet yeah, didn't remember. Yeah. This is a time when there was tremendous misunderstanding as to what the science entailed and you know what it did and what it didn't do. You know what their totally. the potential lied and and, and, and didn't. Um, so I created a documentary about that uh, and you showed it to audiences really all across the country and you spoke. Um, in conjunction with it, and you. Ever since then, I've been you an active writer on on the topic, and you're addressing it from um, all sorts of sociological standpoints. That's what I did my PhD in was on the um, the. Uh, uh, the social factors that affected stem cell policy in countries around the world. Uh, the first class that I taught um, as a professor was a course of my own creation called Stem Cells and Society. So it took a sociological perspective on um, stem cell science and, you know, what factors go into a policy creation, you know, what, um, what are the social implications for the research um, so, these are all different ways that I have sought to intervene and to move the science forward in, in whatever way that I can. Um, and I do this knowing that the path of science is slow, right? right. It is slower than um, anyone would like it to be. It takes, you know. Um, twists and turns and, and unexpected um, you know, course corrections um, that take time. So at the same time, in addition to the advocacy work that I do in, in the uh, regenerative medicine kind of curative side of things, I, I advocate for policies and, and uh, policy change and technological change so that uh, people who live with spinal cord injury can live as rich and full lives as they possibly can.
0: That's awesome. I, I think it's great to hear that you've been able to find an avenue that not only can you pour yourself into, but it's, it's being beneficial in more unique ways. I mean, it's, it's kind of like if people aren't searching for it, we have to put it together and get it in front of them. Exactly. And uh, sometimes that's all it takes is to get it in front of them. I mean, if I'm, if I'm sitting at dinner and the waitress comes up and says, would you like a, you know, would you like a, a dessert Nah, I, I think I'm good with dessert. But if she brings out that tray, you already know yeah. I'm going to get two pieces of pie because it looks <laughs> so dang good on that tray. Exactly. So, you
1: didn't, didn't imagine it before. You couldn't imagine how great it looked.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I think, I think that's, that's critical in, in what you're doing is you're bringing it and putting it in front of people so that they recognize how important and how pivotal it really could be and is becoming Thank um, you. as we move into the future. So, last topic because we're kind of getting close to our time here, but I, I wanted to touch on uh, your new book um, that that you recently had published, and I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of have you do a little talking about you know what what is the book about, um, and who do you think should uh, make sure that they pick up a copy, oh, other than everyone, sure. of course. <laughs>
1: Short, short answer to that question is, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So, um, so uh, when, after I graduated from college uh, back in 2000, uh, my mother and I and my entire family really uh, we wrote a book called Miracles Happened that documented, mm-hmm. kind of chronicled our lives from the time of my accident, 10 years later until I graduated from, from college. And actually, that book was made into uh, the movie, The Rick Ellison Story, directed by um, christopher reeve uh, way back in 2004 it's actually his oh. last project yeah very so very cool kind of very close attachment to him to the reeve family um and as a result of that does that make and, you
0: Superwoman?
1: Uh, well I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't reject the title <laughs> 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 that's for sure but thank you thank you i don't know if exactly on par but um i certainly says uh Something I would I would take with great pride. So thank you. Absolutely. But ever since then, I knew I wanted to write another book, and I was kind of delaying. I didn't really know how I wanted to approach it, or or what. I kind of was was delaying, kind of dilly dallying for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Right after my 40th birthday, literally days after my 40th birthday, I was diagnosed with a stage 4 pressure ulcer on my uh, pressure wound on the, the back of my left leg that was infected with all sorts of really awful things you know that's scary Versa, it was terrifying terrifying and very much put my survival in question um, once it was ultimately treated and kind of gotten a handle on um i said okay there's no more time to waste you need to get your thoughts down and you'd write this book so I squirrelled myself away in my bedroom for that entire <laughs> summer, and like I, I, I would not let myself deviate from what I wanted. So it's like kind of hope in action, right? So like knowing that I had this challenge in my life, and but setting a goal for myself and finding the way to do it. And in this book, which I called Look Both Ways, kind of like a, almost like a tongue-in-cheek kind Mm -hmm. of reference to the nature of my accident, but also really important lessons that I have learned over the past 32 years living with quadriplegia, really, really deep personal um, life lessons about, you know, about living with disability, what that means, you know, how I have, you know, what it means to be the disabled person in a family, you know how I needed to incorporate technology into my life. How I need, how I experienced instances of marginalization or infantilization or invisibility, which is something I think many people with disabilities experience. And then, kind of, I use the fifth chapter, which is kind of the middle chapter of the book, to. Turn the perspective around, right so I talk about all these instances of, of, of sadness or trauma, and then I turn it around and look in the other direction, right What have I learned? You know what really strengths and virtues have I gleaned by virtue of living with a disability? so I talk about hope. I talk about love and my, you know, understandings of relationships. I talk about leadership, which is what I understand to be kind of a maximization of hope, right? Hope kind of being an individual construct with leadership being kind of those very same tenets and those very same skills, but applied to a larger kind of societal audience. And then like what my, mm-hmm. my position now as a professor means and how I look at questions of medical ethics and science ethics and how, how that intersects with disability and and you know, the deep and personal understandings that I have come to that I think are applicable to anybody's life, whether or not you live with disability, because we all experience challenge. And I put everything that I had, everything that I could, um, you know, I, I pulled on every emotional lever in my body <laughs> and like poured my heart, like tears streaming down my face wrote with wow. uh, as much honesty and sincerity as I possibly could. And uh, this is probably what I feel most proud about. You're proudest um, that I possibly could about anything that I've done. So, yeah. So I want to wow. share it with as many people as possible.
0: I, that. That pitch right there has me ready to go by the book <laughs> like tonight. So, oh, uh, I hope so. I, I, I'm excited to, to give it a read. Um, and once again, we, we wanted to thank you for, for joining us on the podcast. I think anybody who goes and reads this book, I think what they're going to find is that um, not only are you brilliant, but you're thinking about all of these scenarios and situations on a level that's greater than yourself. Um, even though you're you're probably using a a personal touch and a, approach to it all, um, it applies to so much more than just people with disabilities. And I think thank you. It's it's people like you that are going to take you know, the SCI community to that next level, um, and really start bringing about change. So
1: oh, I appreciate that so much, David. Thank you. And certainly you as well. And Peter and everybody who
0: is, who is,
1: you know, works with, with the Peter Morton foundation and th- these kinds of platforms are getting the conversation as, as, as broadly broadcast and as widely, um, accepted as possible. Like this is how this happens. So thank you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, Thanks again for joining us, Brooke, um, or Dr. Ellison, as uh, (laughs) I should refer to you. (laughs) Um, But uh, it was absolutely wonderful to have you on here. We'll have links to everything we talked about in the description below. Um, If you're watching us on YouTube, please think about giving us a subscribe um, and even a like. Uh, If you're listening on your favorite podcast platform, you could always give us a follow. Um, and of course, if you want to learn more about Dr. Ellison or any of the work she's done or is doing, um, links are in the description. So thank you again, Brooke. And, uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon.
1: Sounds great. Thank
0: you. Perfect. Thank you.